The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. There is no growth in comfort and no comfort in growth. Business today typically values and promotes leaders for their subject expertise. Leaders who have command of the details and execute based on knowledge and experience are highly respected. However, to grow as a leader, you have to get out of your comfort zone. That means learning to lead without just being the expert. Learn to gain the trust and respect of a team that might know more than you do. Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone, and I'm Wanda Wallace. Now today, we're going to talk about managing in the gray. So in particular, if you think about it, the more successful you are as an individual leader and the more responsibility you take on, the messier the problems are that you face. And just think about it. The easy ones are going to get resolved by your team or the team beneath you. The quote-unquote tougher ones, the ones that are more gray, more ambiguous, more complex, are the ones that get escalated to you to solve. So the question is, how can you manage in the areas of gray more constructively? How can you make decisions when the future is kind of unknown. And we're also going to talk about an additional topic, which was the role of reflection in a world that is packed to the gills with to-dos. Now, how do you think about that leader as hero? There's a lot to discuss today. So with me is Joe Badaracco. Joe is the John Shad Professor of business, e- business Ethics at Harvard Business School, where he teaches courses on business ethics, strategy, and management in the school's programs, both MBA and executive programs. Joe is a graduate of St. Louis University, a Rhodes Scholar from Oxford, and a graduate of Harvard Business School, and his current research focuses on what reflection means in practice for busy, responsible, successful people. Three books that are relevant. One is Defining Moments, When Managers Must Choose Between Right and Right. The second one, Leading Quietly, An Unorthodox Guide to Doing the Right Thing. And the one we're going to start with, Managing in the Gray, which was published this fall. So, Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Wanda. I'm glad to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. And this is certainly a hot topic, this notion of how do you make decisions and lead in the areas of gray. I have to say this week, talking with people around performance management time, everything is, or everybody's anxious about these unknowns. So what do you mean, though, by managing in the gray? Well, I can explain it pretty simply, you know, uh, Most management problems, questions involve the future, and that's always unknown. But there's some problems that are really hard. They're often unusual problems. You haven't faced one before. And uh, you don't have some really basic facts that you would like to have or feel you need to have. Secondly, you're kind of unsure what kind of a problem it is. It can look like a marketing problem. Maybe it's a legal problem. It may look like an ethical problem. Maybe it's a strategic problem. And then the other telling sign is that the people who work with you, 
you know, people, let's say these are people you trust, you've worked with a lot, they've got experience, they don't agree on what the problem is or what you should do about it. And, you know, you're, you find yourself going back and forth in your mind. Some combination of those things is what makes for a, a gray area. So this sounds a lot like um, making a decision, let's say, going into a new product area or when to launch uh, you know, a product, for example, for lack of a better example. And there's a lot of choices. And so it's ambiguous. Is that what you mean by gray? Uh, you know, if you're introducing a new product, it partly depends on whether the product is a spinoff of previous products, whether the market you're inter- putting it into is familiar or not. So if it's a significantly new product aimed at a substantially new market or demographic, and uh, that, then, you're, then it gets grayer and grayer. So I think it's really a world of shades of gray. Yeah, okay. So how do you advise the people think about uh, gray areas, particularly when we're in a world where everybody wants to control the risk, which means get rid of gray? Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, <clears throat> the basic mantra in the book Managing in the Gray is this. It says when you face one of these problems, you should approach it and work through it as a manager, but then ultimately you've got to resolve it as a human being. And by work through it as a manager, I mean doing things that I think everybody who's listening is familiar with and tries to do, I hope, which is you get all the hard facts that you can. Where there's uncertainty, you get some expert judgments or some on-the-ground experienced people to to give you their judgments. You have a good, open-ended discussion in your team or with whoever the relevant people are for getting the decision right. And... In that process, you try to really understand what your options are, the upside, the downside. That's addressing a gray area problem like a good manager. Often you get a solution, but sometimes you don't. And then if you're the boss or you're the person in charge of a unit or a department or something, you've got to make the final call. And that's where the second part of the mantra comes in. You approach it as a manager, but you resolve it as a human being, it depends on your judgment about what's the right approach in this situation. And so my book basically presents five, what I think are timeless questions for struggling with these problems, uh, these gray area problems as a human being. Okay. So what are those five questions? Sure. Um, let me just give you a tiny bit of background. Uh, you know, a typical way of writing a book like this, and a good way would be to interview a lot of successful executives or military leaders or so forth. I decided instead I would, in effect, uh, interview, i.e. read, lots of the writings of people who were widely regarded as extremely wise, compassionate, insightful observers of human life, uh, human nature and decision making. So I went all the way back, and there's people like Aristotle, Plato, Confucius. And the question that I, in effect, took to them is, how do you think about really hard decisions? And I distilled what I found into five questions. The first question, I'll run through them quickly, and then we can pursue whatever you like. The first one says, try to look as comprehensively and objectively as you can at all your options and all their consequences for everybody affected. So it's Get up on the balcony, look at the consequences. Second question is, what basic human duties apply in the situation? 
there's typically a duty to obey the law, but there may be duties about not harming vulnerable people, about telling the truth to people who deserve to have the truth told and the like. So that's the second question, your basic human duties. Third question uh, was uh, sharpened by Machiavelli 500 years ago. It's what will work in the world as it is. And that's a world that's often surprising and turbulent. So do you have a plan of action that's sufficiently sort of flexible and resilient? The fourth question says, who are we? And if you're running an organization, it's much better if you can find a way out of a gray area that is consistent with or resonates with or reinforces the organization's values. Otherwise, people may not get what you're doing. They may not be on board and so forth. Then after you've answered those four questions, you've got to tackle the fifth one, and that is what can you live with? And that's basically the question, what you can live with as a manager who's going to be held accountable for that whatever happens after you make a decision, and as a human being who's going to have that decision as part of the record. So those five questions, I think, are have really stood the test of time. And struggling with them is it what, what is what it means to address these hard questions as a person, as a human being. So, Joe, it strikes me that those don't give you any more insight on your options and your choices. They just help you come to terms with your judgment. Is that fair, well, Summary? Uh, I think uh, they can help quite a lot. They can work kind of like a, a funnel, or, you know, which sort of narrows options down. So you may have some options that work great in terms of consequences, but let's say it involves saying something that isn't true or breaking a commitment, a really serious commitment you've made. Well, that option, even though the consequences are pretty good, may go off the table. You may have something that you think works in terms of consequences and what you think your basic duties are, but you really can't imagine it working in the world you're in, given politics and pressures and uncertainties. So some more options go off the table. That's what I mean by using these questions as kind of a funnel. And uh, at the end of the day, sometimes you get down to one, and you, that's your, your, what you do. And the other, other situations, you may get down to having two or three options at, at the end, and then that's when you've just got to decide what you think is right. That's, you know, if the question is, what's the right answer to a great area problem? The answer is what you decide it is after you've worked through it as a manager and as a human being. And that, that's it. <laughs> Meaning we may never know. <laughs> that's very important. You often don't know. Because, uh, you know, things may turn out great, but how much luck was involved? And they may turn out badly, you know, and that may be bad luck. I think all you can sort of know is, and communicate to other people, hopefully your bosses, is you deserve to get it right. Because you really did get the process right as a manager, and then you really thought through it as a human being. Okay, like, I like deserving that one. to get it right is about the best you can aim for. The rest is up to a, often to a pretty uncertain world. 
Okay. All right. So let me just repeat this. The notion is that I do all the things that we've been taught in wonderful business schools like Harvard to do as a manager. So I'm going to get all the facts I can. I'm going to get the expert judgment and opinions and experiences in. I'm going to have very open, candid discussions with the relevant people and with the experts. I'm going to um, process, see all the, go through the process to see all of the options and the pros and cons for each of those options. Okay? That's, yeah. I've done all that homework, background, um, logical, analytical work, and now I turn to resolving this as a human being, where I am really relying on my judgment. There may be an answer at the end, there may not be an answer at the end, but I'm going to try the best I can. And in that human being component, five questions. One is, um, what are the consequences that you're willing to live with, yes. That I'm willing to live with. What are the options and the consequences for those? Then two, what are my human duties? What apply in this situation and will it work or not work? And number three, will it work in the world that I'm in? And number four, who are we and is what I'm thinking about most consistent with their values? And then fine, what can I live with exactly. as a manager and as a human being? And yes. hope that that narrows you down to one, two, choices that make it a simpler process. That's right. And, you know, it may not narrow it down and things can still be, can, can still be gray, uh, you know. Um, yeah. But if you're the person in charge and it's your responsibility to make the decision and then move ahead with it with other people, uh, you've got to make a call. Yeah. And uh, that's where... What can you live with? What, in your judgment, is the right approach uh, comes into play? And I should emphasize when I say, in your judgment, that just it doesn't mean simply sort of what in your private moments you're happy with or you can live with. You've got to be able to explain it to other people. But the explanation will typically take the form of, look, we really worked this problem hard. And in terms of the conse- all the consequences, this looks best. Or in terms of some basic duties or obligations, this is best. Or in terms of, you know, the best practical thing, this is best. Or in terms of who we are. You know, these five questions have been around because they help you think things through. They're also sort of like uh, radio channels for communicating. Uh, um, you know, let me give you, let me just demonstrate quickly how important these questions are. Imagine uh, you were part of a group. I gave you a short one-page management problem, broke everybody into subgroups and said, take an hour, work on this problem, and come back with a solution. But you can't talk about the consequences of your options, can't talk about basic human duties, you can't talk about what will work, can't talk about the character of the organization, you can't talk about your your real values, what you're trying to accomplish. You know, you can't have a conversation. So there really is something fundamental, foundational about these questions. Uh, I didn't invent them. They've just been around and they've endured. Okay. So it sounds fairly straightforward to these five. I get that there's this nervousness if I have to make a judgment and I'm afraid of getting it wrong. I get that. But the five questions sound pretty basic. Why don't leaders do more of this? Well, time pressure is one factor. Uh, Secondly, I think that some of the questions are a little, you know, are 
kind of unfamiliar and seems sort of squishy and intangible, like who are we? Um, I think questions like the one about consequences can be really hard. In the book, I sort of sketch how you can use very simple decision trees to make sure you're seeing all the options and all the possible consequences of those options. That takes a little time uh, to do. I also think that a lot of people, um, successful people, actually do ask these questions or think them through, often implicitly. But if you heard them make a decision, heard what their decision was after they were dealing with a gray area, and you could sort of tap them on the shoulder and say, why did you make that decision? I think you'd probably hear some mix of consequences, duties, pragmatism, etc. Because I really think these are almost inescapable categories. I think it's better, though, rather than hope you're doing it implicitly, to try to sit down, take some quiet time, and try to think through them explicitly. Okay. All right, so we're back to that notion of quiet time. Presumably this one, um, especially the one that strikes me, the who are we, and is this idea or this option that I'm considering consistent with our organization's values and our organization's culture and our capabilities and all that mm-hmm. sort of thing. So it's easy to bring people on. Presumably if you haven't spent the time to say who are we, that makes it very difficult to address that issue now in a great problem. Yes, that's right. And um What I recommend in the book is kind of an exercise of imagination. And if you've spent some time in an organization and if you've been kind of observing and trying to understand and get a feel for it, you're much more likely to get this exercise right. The exercise says, take each one of the options you've got for this gray area problem and imagine that it's your final decision, and you're going to get up and explain it briefly to a group of people in your organization and explain it in terms of what they care about, um, if it's a new organization, the sort of founder's values. Um, If you're going to explain it, maybe you can refer to some other important decisions that have been made recently. This imaginary talk, explanation, introduction of your answer to people who, you know, have really been there is kind of a way of, you know, put yourself in that audience and say, are you going to buy this? Are you going to say, come on, where's this guy coming from? Mm -hmm. Um, Part of this fourth question about who are we really is a matter of uh, feel. You know, lots of organizations have stories that get circulated about how things were done well or how things were done badly or what managers in the organization who were successful are really admired for. And you want to try to come up with decisions that as much as possible resonate with that whole collection of somewhat intangible things. Okay. Makes a lot of sense to me. Um, Let me ask one last question on this one, Joe, just before we take a break. Any advice for people who are just struggling to come to conclusions? So it can do all of this analysis. It can answer all of these five questions. I may still be left with two or three choices, and I just flat out have to pick. Any advice on that one? 
Well, I think it's great to have uh, someone you can talk with uh, and uh, see what they think, uh, what sort of they're not going to give you the answer, but you can maybe refine your thinking and get a little clarity about what you need to do. Another little exercise of your imagination is to think in terms of a manager, a business leader, that you are a person that you really admire and somebody who you'd like to respect you, okay? And imagine yourself explaining your decision to them. So if you've got three options, which one of those do you think you could really explain convincingly to this person whose regard and respect you really want? That might be kind of a way of unearthing, you know, what in your gut you think is kind of the right thing to do. But basically, at some point, you just have to make these decisions, and you have to make them knowing you may be getting them wrong. I mean, they're, they're gray. And knowing that somebody else might make them differently. And then the last thing I'd stress is that often what is even more important in gray areas is getting the execution right on whatever you decide to do. Um, and you need to move on to that and move ahead. Yeah. So again, I often say to people with this stuff um, that sometimes a decision is better than no decision. And that frequently you have a chance to do some micro-adjustments. You don't always yes. if the consequences are obvious, I mean, are really polar opposites. Um, but just to recognize that you make, you, you get movement because that's going to give you insight. I heard a senior leader recently say that one of the reasons that he had made it to the levels he was at at, the, at a very young age is that he was willing to wade in on a mountain of a problem that nobody else would touch. Everybody could see it. There's no clear path forward, and he was just willing to wade in. And he said, you know, you get up a little bit, and you look down, you realize that there was a better path coming up that mountain, but you can't see that until you get up a ways. That's right. It's just getting... I I do think, you know, we've got a very complicated, uncertain world. Everybody knows that. And I'd want to wade in with kind of the best roadmap I can. But then if that's the best direction... Right. Move in that direction. I agree. With, I agree very much with that individual. Well, I like your process here, Joe, and we're going to take a break. It's this notion of yes, yes, yes. We do all the stuff that we typically do to get the right opinions and the facts and the, you know, expertise and the debate and the pros and the cons and the analysis and all of that. Of course, none of that goes away. But at the end, that often doesn't give you the answer you need to do. And then turning to your five questions to see if that helps you eliminate any other options. And to repeat again, one of them has to do with what are the consequences for each of the objections that are options I have in front of me? Mm-hmm. Two, what are the human duties and which of those apply? What are my responsibilities as a human being? Where does this apply to each one of them? Three, what will work in the world as it is today, the reality, the messy political dynamic you happen to find yourself in? before is who are we and is this option consistent with our organization's values and practices and capabilities and then finally what is it that you can live with as a manager and as a human being so joe excellent excellent summary wanda i'm not sure why i needed to write a whole book <laughs> there's a lot more to say about this one so with me today is joe Badaracco. joe is uh, the john shad professor of business ethics at harvard business school 
His book that we've been talking about is Managing the Gray and other two books that are relevant, Leading Quietly, An Unorthodox Guide to Doing the Right Thing, and then an earlier one, Defining Moments, When Managers Must Choose Between Right and Right. So we're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about this whole thing of leading quietly in the role of reflection in a world that can't stop. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. What does a visual workplace mean to you? How does it contribute to operational excellence? And what steps do you take to put it powerfully in place? Listen to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense to find out. Each week, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, shares tools and strategies to help you make the workplace speak at a glance without saying a word. Learn to work safer, faster, better, and at far less cost no matter what business you're in. Tune in to The Visual Workplace, Every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is John, Joe Badaracco, who's a professor of business ethics at Harvard Business School. We have been talking about Joe's research on reflection and what it means to in practice for busy, responsible, successful people. The book we were just talking about is Managing in the Gray and the notion that there are both management processes you use to make a decision when the answer is unknown and unclear, and equally there are more human dynamic Um, responsibility questions that you ask that have actually been around for several hundreds of years and have stood the test of time of the kind of reflections that you need to make. Now, I want to go to a second component about this whole thing about managing in the gray. I believe, and I think Joe believes as well, that one of the challenges in gray areas is we all want to be right. Uh, For some of us, we want to be perfect as well, but at least we want to be right. And we want to be the hero, the one who rides in and saves the day and who comes up with the perfect answer and the perfect solution and the perfect way forward that turns out to be heroic. 
fact, I believe that this is deeply seated in all of our psyches about what it means to be the leader, as in being the hero. So, Joe, you've written a lot about leading in unorthodox ways and particularly about not being a hero. So, Kim, let's start with how do you see this notion of the hero leader showing up and work? Well, I think, uh, first of all, it's a really important notion. Uh, it may have some evolutionary basis. We can speculate on that later on if you'd like. It's certainly what we learn as we're growing up in school about important leaders uh, who have been heroes. And these are typically people who have been very clear about their objectives. They've been completely devoted to them. They were willing to sacrifice a lot, sometimes almost sacrifice everything. Uh, And they've typically sort of changed our world. And children should learn about them. And I think these leaders can inspire all of us. But that said, I think if you go in almost any organization, you won't find a lot of people in the ordinary course of business who remind you of Dr. King or Gandhi or Churchill or whoever you want to pick as a heroic leader. So that was my initial observation, that I just hadn't run into a lot of heroic figures. And I wanted, my question was for this book, well, what's the alternative approach to leading? Uh, And after thinking about it and talking with people and really analyzing a lot of case studies, I came up with this notion of quiet leadership as an alternative. Okay. All right. So describe what quiet leadership looks like in your view. Well, first of all, uh, I think almost everybody listening probably has worked with and had the chance to observe quiet leaders in their organizations, they may have not paid much attention to them. But you can tell that a quiet leader is at work or has been at work if part of an organization is operating better afterwards, after that person has been there for a while. It's not altogether clear that that individual was responsible for everything that happened. A lot of people are working more effectively and liking what they're doing. And if you really look closely, you can see lots of small, subtle, important ways in which this individual brought about that improvement. These people, I find, tend to be modest. They don't beat their own drums. Often they don't get the recognition and rewards they deserve in an organization, but every place they work is typically better off for their having been there even though there isn't a lot of noise, a lot of drama, a lot of fireworks. You know, the business leaders we typically hear and read about and think about are ones that are, you know, on the cover of the business magazines or back in the days when there were business magazines. You know, and entrepreneurs are often the heroic business leaders of our time. There just aren't a lot of people like Steve Jobs or Elon Musk in most organizations. Managing for most people is very different and is much more often a matter of quiet leadership. Okay. All right. So I even find, I want to talk about this notion about heroic leadership. I get your point that in school we learn all the lessons we 
figure out or hear about great leaders who've changed the world really were heroic in their own ways. And our mythology, our stories that we tell Mm -hmm. about people who've done amazing things are all about heroes and see that through the story literature. So this notion that you lead without being the hero, you aren't the one who has the answer, who knows where the direction to go, who's sacrificed yourself above and beyond, who's met major obstacles, but that you just quietly go about making sure things get done, may not even do it yourself, mm-hmm. just feels somehow to a lot of people like, I'm not working hard enough. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's funny how um, this the heroic view, uh, how deeply ingrained it is. There's a saying, I imagine you've heard it, and maybe a number of people listening in have, that I really don't like. It says, uh, leaders are people who do the right thing, and managers are people who do things in the right way. And that's kind of saying that managers are sort of second-class citizens, and they send out the memos, and they work on the budgets, and hold the meetings. Uh, I think that's actually wrong. There's a book that I hope somebody writes, maybe it has been written, that would take uh, really important heroic leaders and look at how they spent most of their time. And so we know them for crusades and great speeches and sacrifices. But that's not how they spent most of their time. Take, for example, uh, Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech uh, given at the climax of the March of Washington. He never would have given that speech, and we wouldn't even be talking about it, if he hadn't spent about two weeks ahead of time trying to work with six or seven different civil rights groups who really disagreed about whether to have a march, who was on the podium, who said what and when. There was a lot of managerial work, process work, that he and others had to do before this heroic moment that we that we remember. So my definition of management and leadership is essentially working with and through other people to accomplish something. And there the focus is on, are you really accomplishing something? And are you doing it with and through other people? And whether you're leading the charge are doing something more quiet and subtle, I don't think that matters very much. Now, there are times at meetings when something needs to be said, and it can take some guts to put up your hand and say it. Uh, And these are sort of heroic moments. But I don't think the classic heroic model is the right one for getting things done most of the time in organizations. Well, if you have the notion that I have to be the hero, buried in the background of that also means that that means I have to be sacrificing myself. If I'm not pushing myself Mm -hmm. to the limit, then I'm not being the hero in our classic literary sense of hero. Mm -hmm. Um, It also means that I have to know more than everybody else or do more than everybody else or be ahead of everybody else, which isn't effective in bringing an organization with you. Um, and it probably sets up some really awful demands on you and your time that just create burnout. That's absolutely true, and I think you are vastly more likely to experience burnout than you are to actually accomplish something. One of the traits, the first, the primary trait of the quiet leaders I studied and observed was that they're very modest about how much they know and how much they can control 
and how far they can see down the road. Um, there's a little prayer, I think, attributed to a French, French uh, fisherman, and it's something to the effect that, Lord, the sea is so great and my boat is so small. And I think there's a kind of humility and modesty about that that I think is exactly right. For today, given so many uncertainties and complexities, so you do have to work with and through other people and find ways to do that rather than think you've got the answer or you're supposed to have it and put it in front of everybody else. Yeah. Yeah, and our heroic model would be, okay, great, go build a bigger boat. <laughs> and then a bigger one and a bigger one. <laughs> yeah, and, and here's my design for the right way to do it. Let's go to work. Yeah, yeah. I really do think that there's a lot in this one. One of the things that I spend a lot of time talking about is this whole notion, the whole desire to control. Mm-hmm. So risk management, compliance, regulatory, all the issues that business leaders are dealing with around the world increases the pressure for you to be in control of whatever it is that's going on underneath you, whatever level it is that you're leading. And yeah. that means that you have to know everything and be on top of every detail and not be surprised by any detail or else I have to have what feels like blind faith yeah. in the people around me. And I think that's just another version of the notion of the heroic. It as you is. pointed out. Uh, it's yeah, also a little egotistical as well. You know, you, you ought to have some people working with you or for you that are as smart as you are, maybe even smarter. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so it's it's not all your, your doing, your thinking, your insights. There's, you know, you're right. I think some people feel they have to control everything or just trust people completely. I think there's a lot of space in between, and this is where quite you can find quiet leaders at work effectively. And my advice to people listening is spend a little time thinking about people in your organization that you may not have paid attention to, but do fit the description I gave earlier. They make things better without calling a lot of attention to themselves and observe how they do it. There's also, I think, a great uh, statement by Cassius Clay. So this was Muhammad Ali before he changed his name and converted to Islam. And he had a big fight. I don't know who he was fighting, and the guy was much bigger and stronger and so forth. And the question to Cassius Clay was, what's your strategy? And he said, I'm going to float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. And the idea is that, you know, you want to be open and try to have some sense of what's going on in the department, the unit, whatever you're responsible for. Not know everything, but, you know, you want to try to have a sense, talking to people, staying on top of the pulse, the numbers, and all the rest. And then selectively you get involved. Um, But you, you can't and shouldn't try to control it all. You'll go insane and you'll lose good people and it's a bad path. Okay. And All right. You're, and you're, so, not, you're not really training yourself to rise higher in the organization because the higher you get, the more layers and people and complexity underneath you. And if you try to control it all, uh, you, you're just not going to move up. Yeah, right. I think that's one of the things that holds people back without realizing it. Yeah, um, there's there's so, an, art, an art to uh, sort of asking the right question knowing what you need to know, knowing when you need to know it. And uh, that's really an art. It's not an algorithm. Yeah. Okay. 
So we've talked a lot about the whole thing of um, being a heroic leader and the way that's so deeply ingrained. And you've talked about what the non-heroic leader looks like and that they're fairly quiet, they get things done, they don't necessarily, you know, just small, subtle things that get improved under their watch. So if you were giving sort of the three pieces of to-dos to be a non-heroic or a quiet leader, what are your top actions? Sure. Uh, First is one I've already mentioned, which is try to be modest about how much you really know and how much you control. Uh, secondly, when you're trying to find a way to move forward on something complicated, uh, nudge, test, and sort of escalate gradually rather than come up with a definitive plan and charge the hill. Uh, third, I'd say pay attention to your political capital and uh, try to find approaches to situations that actually build political capital for yourself and your unit. You know, the idea of uh, the heroic model is you're willing to sacrifice. But basically, most people want to keep their jobs. They want to advance in their careers. That's the way the world works and should work. So, uh, and if you've got kind of an instinct telling you, boy, this is dangerous. This is not, this is not the way to do things. This is bad for my career you ought to stop and think twice and a third time and try and find something better. And then I'd say be willing to compromise, but before you compromise, look for creative compromises. And often, especially if you work with other people, you may start out thinking there's A, B, and C, but in time you find there's D and F that are creative approaches to getting around or through the same sort of minefield. And uh, it takes some time and effort, but... uh, They're worth looking for. Okay. It's very interesting. It strikes me, Joe, on this topic about not embracing heroic leadership or embracing quiet leadership, that we have to change a lot of our descriptions of leaders. So we often use the word ambitious, driven, Mm -hmm. wants to take charge, grab the reins, hungry for power, Mm -hmm. many times meaning positive things by those, that they are a go-getter and want to make things happen. But that plays right into this notion of the hero as leader as opposed to an alternative version of leading. Okay, we're going to take a break. With me today is Joe Badaracco. Joe is a professor of business ethics at Harvard University, Harvard Business School. I'll get that straight in a minute. The three books we've been talking about, first was Managing in the Gray, and second one is Leading Quietly, an Unorthodox Guide to Doing the Right Thing. And particularly in this segment, we've been talking about how strongly baked into our brains the hero as leader is. And the alternative is to lead in a different way, where you leave your organization in a better place because you've done a lot of small, subtle things with and through other people that leave people feeling pretty good about where they work and what they're doing. So when we come back, we're going to talk finally about this whole notion of reflection, something no one has any time for, but why is it really critically important if you're going to be an effective leader? We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. 
You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Your entrepreneurial vision has taken hold. Your business is growing. It's everything you hoped for. Or is it? With growth comes bigger headaches, more hiring, more capital, more customers to satisfy, more employees to manage, more plates to juggle, and more demands on your time. Get off that merry-go-round now. Tune in to The Business Edge with Marsha Zeidel. You'll meet street-smart entrepreneurs and business leaders sharing their success stories as well as practical solutions to the unique challenges faced by growing companies. Heard every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Klass. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone, to reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Joe Badaracco. Joe is a professor of business ethics at Harvard Business School, and we've been talking about two of Joe's books, Managing in the Gray and then Leading Quietly. And I'm going to do my best at trying to pull these two together in a single theme. The notion is that you make very difficult decisions where the answer isn't clear, the path isn't really straightforward, but you still have to make the decision. But you want to make that as a human being. So there are questions that cause you to reflect, to think about the consequences and the implications for the people that you're leading, five of them specifically. But to do that kind of work where you are managing in the gray and making those decisions and taking the organization forward, you have to abandon your notion of being a hero leader so that you need to lead in a different way, not with the one who's got the answers, leading up the hills, is right, is in control, but rather one that can lead quietly to get a lot of right things done in small, more subtle ways. So, Joe, I want to turn now and talk about the last piece of this one, which is the importance of reflection. Sure. So, you know, years ago, when I was running executive education programs, we would put reflection time into every single day. And today, if that shows on the agenda, nobody turns up. That's when you have your BlackBerry moments, your conference calls, or your whatever. So good luck getting people to reflect. Um, So why do you think this is so critical to take time for reflection? Well, uh, let me just go back one step and describe what I've been doing for the last year or so. And I'm really in the early phases of a research project. And uh, everybody is advised to reflect, and everybody sort of feels they should. But as you said, who has time for it? So my question for this research is, 
what does reflection mean for busy, responsible, successful people, and when and how do they do whatever they do? Maybe they don't do anything. So I've now interviewed about 60 people, and I intend to uh, interview considerably more. So all I have thus far are some initial patterns. What has really surprised me is what a large fraction of these people find at least some time to do what they count as reflection, and they're often trying to put aside more time. So they view it as something important. And in many cases, number of cases, they've said it's really like exercise. You may not want to do it. You may not want to take the time for it, but you've got to find time to do it. And sometimes they're, in some cases, they're kind of happy with what they do. In other cases, they would like to be doing more. But there's no doubt that they view it as important. Okay. Now, um, I have two questions for this. A, how much time do they spend on reflection? And then B, why do they think it's important? Well, I think that different people think it's important for a wide range of reasons. And... This is one of my initial observations is that people find their own way to do it. So, for example, I've talked to some people who are religious, and they want their lives to express certain religious values. So they will look at Scripture or something else in the morning or in the morning and the evening and try to check during the day that they're living uh, in, on those terms. For other people, reflection has more to do with, this may almost be the opposite end of the spectrum, has more to do with success at work. And they understand that they need fairly often to step back and say, how have the meetings been going? How am I doing on making progress towards my bigger goals? And occasionally, do I have the right larger goals at work for myself and the people I'm working with, or do I need to rethink those? So they're trying not just to get sucked into the vortex of, uh, you know, endless emails and to-dos. But in every case, whether it's these more personal forms of reflection or the more professional, they think they really need to step back, that they won't be working as well or living as well uh, unless they do that. That's why fundamentally they think it's important. I certainly have talked to a couple of um, very senior leaders in intensely driven businesses like financial services mm-hmm. who talk about reflection in a very small way, not in a capital R way, as in mm-hmm. let me reflect on scripture or meditate or something like that. And it's a very small. It's down to that, what's the thing I really want to get done today? What's most Mm -hmm. important to me today? What's the biggest agenda item Mm -hmm. I need to ensure I get done? And when am I going to get it done? Um, And, you know, down to all these meetings that are in my calendar, are those the ways I really need to be spending my time? Or is it time to clear the Mm -hmm. decks a bit? So, and is that what you mean by reflection? Is that the kind of thing you're finding as well? That's one kind of thing, but as of now, I think that's one kind of, out of maybe 17 different things. In other words, I've really been struck by a basic pattern. People, I've been surprised because I've talked to some really busy people, including some CEOs of really big companies. And I've 
wondered, you know, whether they just say, well, gee, I don't really do it. I should, uh, you know, they've had a lot to say. Okay. They've found their own particular way to do it. So one guy who founded and ran a medium sized, very successful, uh, private equity company just got to work. He said an hour early every day and he sat in his office and he said the rest of the day is going to be in meetings and looking at transactions, and he could just get lost in that. He said he spent an hour every day, trying to, at the beginning of every day, trying to think ahead about what he really wanted to focus on during that day. Uh, now, that's a lot of time, okay? And for a lot of people, getting there an hour early and getting the quiet time is tough. But that's just one of, I mean, people find times to do this on weekends. Some people just find, they, they sort of do reflection, I'd say, in the sort of cracks and crevices. Uh, you know, we've got this notion in the back of our minds that reflection is you go up to the top of the mountain and, you know, you're by yourself and you're thinking great thoughts or reading great works. But they're just taking five minutes here. Am I moving in the way I want to move? And they just they they try to pull themselves out of the flow of things. Some people actually will schedule fifteen minutes every other day. You know, at four fifteen, if they don't have something else to do, then and they'll try to close the door or take a walk or something and do this. I've been really surprised. I thought a lot of people might have just said they were overwhelmed, but it's uh, people feel a need to do it and find some value in it, so they they work out their own ways. Great. And I love that because uh, people often ask me, you know, how do I become more strategic? And one mm-hmm. of my things I say is it's not like you're going to find another hour every day to think strategically. Mm-hmm. So it's this notion of putting that into the way you run your daily life where I'm taking 15 minutes here or 10 minutes there or five minute walk between this meeting and the next meeting mm-hmm. to reflect on the purpose of that meeting, the mm-hmm. intent, the strategic intent. Yes, there's what you could call kind of micro-reflection, which is what you're talking about today, Mm -hmm. the meeting this week. But then uh, you do need to take some time occasionally, and this may be half an hour, an hour on weekends, to really step back a little further and think about broader direction and how things are going and things like that. Okay, great. uh, I think successful people... I mean, I wish I could put sort of uh, electrodes on people's heads and follow them. I, my strong suspicion is they do a lot more of this than their busy lives would suggest they do. I think, I think you're right about that. I think they spend some time on the bigger pictures. So, Joe, we've just got a couple minutes before we wrap up. Any advice for people who want to start putting um, reflection more into their daily leadership life? Any ideas on how to go about doing this or questions to ask? Well, uh, I would say, in essence, be managerial about it, okay? Uh, That is, put aside the time, try to clear the time, hold yourself accountable for spending the time, even if it's only 10 minutes every third day. And then when you put aside that time to step back and slow down, experiment with and try to figure out what works best for you. And as you learn what works best for you, then try to hold yourself accountable for actually doing that. 
In other words, make it into a management task. I, that's another thing that surprised me is how systematic and purposeful and organized a lot of people are about their reflection time. And this is about the only way to make it happen, you know, with all these things pinging us continuously. But be a manager about it. Make it into a managerial task. Okay. So presumably things like put it on the calendar and protect it as a meeting and make sure nobody schedules on top of it. That's right, if you can do that. Uh, Or as you said, make sure you try and take that 10-minute walk and keep a list of how many times a week you did it. Okay. Don't... it may be important, and you may feel you should do it, but don't think it's just going to happen spontaneously. It, it won't. Okay. So it's not. It's more purposeful, as you said. So it's not a spontaneous, when I get a moment and there's nothing going on, then I'll take time for reflection. Okay? No, you've got to schedule it in and hold yourself <laughs> accountable for putting aside the time and then doing it in the way that, work, that you've found over time works for you. Okay. All right. Excellent. Joe, it's been a fabulous show. With me today is Joe Badarocco. Joe is the John Chad Professor of Business Ethics at Harvard Business School. There are three books that we've been talking about. The first one was Managing in the Gray. The second one is Leading Quietly, an Unorthodox Guide to Doing the Right Thing. And the last one is Defining Moments, When Managers Must Choose Between Right and Right. Now, as you can tell all the way through this show, one of the big themes is this notion that the problems that you face as a leader are complicated, layered, messy, not clear, ambiguous, in effect, gray. And that to get through those grays and use your judgment and be wise about it, you need to have time to do some reflection. So we talked about five questions that help for reflection. We were just talking about the ways in which very busy leaders find that reflection is essential to their success and staying on track. And we've talked about getting rid of that hero mythology in our own heads so that it means that you don't have to have the answers and be in charge of everything and lead the battle up the hill, but can let others step in in other ways. So, Joe, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. I enjoyed it, Wanda. Thanks for having me. Okay, thank you. And then next week, we're going to talk with Mark Milders. And so this is a leader in a business, and we're going to talk about his experience as a leader, particularly in times of transition and a little bit on the influence side. How does he get other people to come along with him on the journey? Join us then. Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.